Welcome to another episode of Backlash Podcast. Our guest today is Phil Schweik. And Phil is going to give us a little bit of rundown on tournament muskie fishing. And we're also going to talk about river fishing. Uh, we'll call it basics, something like that maybe. I don't know. I don't even know if it's so basic. We're just talking about river current, kind of what to look for in a river, boat control, a bunch of different topics we're going to talk about. It should be cool if you're into rivers, whether you're fishing rivers in Wisconsin, fishing rivers in Illinois, West Virginia, Virginia, Pennsylvania, doesn't matter. Hopefully you should be able to take something out of this episode. And we'll say this episode is sponsored by Team Rhino Outdoors, mostly because we don't have any sponsors. We just, uh, Brad and I, Brad from Musky Mayhem Tackle, we uh, do this podcast every week just to, uh, I'd say we're giving back to the musky community, but in turn, you know, the musky community typically gives back to us by checking out our websites. So if you're interested in getting some musky gear for 2021, check out teamrhinooutdoors.com. Also, if you're interested in more information on Team Rhino Outdoors, you want to follow us socially, check us out on Twitter, at TRO Fishing. You can check us out on Instagram, and you can check us out on Facebook. We also have a YouTube channel. And guess what, Brad? I've been talking about this for a long time. Talked about editing videos. I have actually four videos already uploaded. They're not all action videos. I got one of them there. I started the season off catching a couple of muskies. And if anybody pays attention to this podcast, you'll realize that these probably aren't giants. I was out there by myself, but it's a start. I finally started working on stuff. So Brad, I know you were working on some stuff as well. Why don't you talk a little bit about uh, Muskie Mayhem Tackle and talk a little bit about what you get, what you've been up to. Cause I know you've been doing a lot of editing lately. Absolutely. Um, it's kind of like, uh, my second or third shift job, I guess, Jeff, you know, I'm going to go, th- I'm going to go a third shift on that one. Not so much second. <laughs> I must be working swing shift. I don't know what I'm doing, but I, I'm trying to build baits all day. And then, uh, somewhere in the late evening, I switch gears and start editing. So, and, uh, by no means am I a professional editor, but I'm kind of getting the job done. And I guess uh, the best way to put it is we just released what we're doing is a little mini series called the Pro Staff Profiles. And basically what we're doing is looking into the careers and the individual guides that work with Muskie Mayhem Tackle. And uh, we named it the Pro Staff Profiles. You can check it out on our YouTube channel. The first one was released uh, two days ago on February 8th, Monday. It's Matt Seifert. And from here on out, what we're going to do is Every Monday after this for five, or excuse me, it'll be 10 weeks. Every uh, two weeks, we're going to release another guide that uh, we will highlight. So it's kind of a neat little mini series. I hope that it, it's resonated well with the uh, public. And um, I'm planning on doing more of our pro staffers this following year, too, at, or the season of 2021. So everything was filmed in 2020. I think it's a pretty cool little concept, so hopefully the public likes it as well. Go check it out on our YouTube channel. Otherwise, you can check us out both on Facebook, Instagram, or our website. So, Muskie Mayhem Tackle, and I appreciate all the business that everybody gives us. So, from there, I think we're ready. Absolutely. So, Brad, I think you didn't give yourself enough credit on your editing skills. I think they're actually probably pretty solid. I only watched, like, the first two minutes of... The, um, the one today, the pro staff profile from uh, Matt Seifert, mostly because I started watching it and then I had to go get my kids from school. And then you and I have been podcasting pretty much all afternoon because we kind of got this pretty cool, hopefully this is a pretty cool episode, episode number 100 coming up. This is, I think, number 98. So we got one more episode coming up and then we got the 100th episode and hopefully everybody finds it to be kind of cool. Definitely different. I mean, I'd say it's kind of different than our other episodes. Yeah, hands down, Jeff. I would say it is. It's unique in the sense that uh, we're going to have multiple people on there. Hopefully, there's a ton of different little informational bits that people can pick up on it. I mean, we're going to celebrate the hundredth episode, obviously, and we tried to do something unique with that. The other thing, let's talk about, would be. This weekend, we should have been setting up in the, I mean, quite honestly, but when you hear this podcast tomorrow from this podcast, you should be, we we should be setting up in Milwaukee for a show. Unfortunately, we are not going to be at a show. So instead, we are going to be doing free shipping. I know Muskie Mayhem Tackle has a free shipping deal. Brad will tell you about that. And Team Rhino Outdoors has a free shipping deal. And I will talk about that right now. 
So if you go to our website on Friday the 12th, Saturday the 13th, and Sunday the 14th, I believe are the dates, and you enter the code T-R-O number one. Nowadays, that's actually called like a hashtag instead of the number symbol. I believe that's what that's called. So it'd be like T-R-O hashtag one, even though that used to be number. Uh, us old guys used, used to know it as that. You enter that, free shipping. There's a couple exclusions on the website. It basically, if the if it says in the product description that the cost is this much and this is how much shipping is, you don't get free shipping on that. But anything else would be included in the free shipping deal, including Lakewood tackle boxes. Those are included in there too. And you know, not specifically for the sale, but coincidentally, we just got loaded up on those. And we've gotten loaded up on piles of other stuff in the in the uh, shop as well. So that's it. If you want to save yourself some shipping, it doesn't matter how big of an order you put in or how small of an order you put in, enter T-R-O number one. We'll call that hashtag. T-R-O hashtag one is the code free shipping. Brad, what's going on with Muskie Mayhem Tackle? Well, just just the same as you, Jeff. We are doing February 12th through the 14th free shipping, and it's all about the Milwaukee show, right? I mean, that's where we should be. So Our code is Milwaukee 21. Milwaukee and the new year being the 2021. So it's Milwaukee 21. Check it out. We're going to have a bunch of different custom baits that are, I think, I believe what she's doing is on the website, there will be like a Milwaukee show area where there's custom baits on there that you can purchase. And not unlike any other day, but I mean, you can come and build any kind of custom you want right on our website. We hope that you, uh, take a look at it. And I know there's just a bunch of rabbit squirrels out there again with uh, willow blades. So I know that could be attractive to some people, but uh, again, it's Milwaukee 21. Hopefully you come to the website. We appreciate all the business and uh, I'm, I'm excited to see what kind of takes place with this weekend. Well, you beat me to it. I was going to ask you, you got some willow rabbit squirrels. I missed out on them last time. I think they sold out in like two hours or an hour or something like that. Ridiculous. So I, I still haven't gotten any yet, even though, I need to. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, the rabbit squirrel is a demanding bait. And so meaning that it takes some time to tie and uh, it's always a challenge, but we were able to squeeze some of these out. So I, you know, it's, it's super cool. We had a really good success with the Chicago show weekend. And uh, I think we loaded up some newer colors and some different things there with those as well. So it should be interesting. That's a fact. So anyways, we're going to go and uh, we're going to talk to Phil Schweik. If anybody is interested, check out our YouTube channel from, uh, I don't know, maybe a couple years ago. The only 50-inch fish that we've ever recorded on YouTube came with Steve Jensen catching a bulldog while he was being guided by Phil Schweik. So if you're interested in that, check it out and uh, stay tuned for this episode. And we're going to go talk to Phil about river muskies. All right, our guest on this episode is Phil Schweik with Hooksetters Guide Service. Phil primarily guides out of central Wisconsin, mostly the Wisconsin River type stuff. So we're going to do definitely a lot of river talk on this one. But we're also going to talk a little bit about tournaments. But before we get into that, we're going to probably go down the background with Phil. He could talk about his guide service a little bit, talk about what, why he decided to be a muskie fisherman. I'm sure it's, you know, he's just crazy just like the rest of us. But anyways, uh, before we get started on that, Phil, thanks for coming out and uh, talking muskies with us. We really appreciate you coming out today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here, and it's good talking with you too, Jeff, and Brad as well. I mean, it sounds like, uh, I guess you'd probably rather be talking muskies right now than getting out ice fishing. I know that you're with your guide service, you do a lot of that as well. I mean, that's been that's probably been a little brutal if you've been out fishing at all in the last few days. Um, you know what? This has been so far one of the best winters ever for ice fishing. I'm sure you know as well. Great ice conditions, very little snow, um, warm temperatures, and you know as far as Wisconsin goes, we're not used to having a winter like that. And until this last week when we got hit with this cold weather, and even then it's not that bad. And I, I actually just got home from being out all day. I was actually out, out and uh, and just got home right before our our call, so it's not that bad out. But this weekend was definitely. Definitely colder than I want to be out in for ice fishing. Yeah, absolutely. At least today, for anybody that cares, today is like Monday, I don't know, February 8th maybe. And at least it was calm today. I don't know where it was by you, but today we didn't have the high winds like we've had, you know, the previous three days. So at least with the zero or five degree temperatures, whatever we had, at least we didn't have that wind to compete with. 
I want you guys to realize it was 23 below this morning when I woke up. So the five or zero, I'd take it right now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and that's the funny part about it. You know, I tell people all the time, I would rather have zero and no wind than even 20 degrees and a 10 mile an hour wind because that wind is a killer. And it'll just just eat through you. All right. Well, Phil, speaking of fishing, I know typically you're, like I said, at this time of year, you're doing yourself a lot of ice fishing, but we're, we're here to talk muskies. Why don't you go down a little background, kind of, you know, what you're all up to, what your guide service is, what got you into muskies. Although even we can even talk about multi-species as far as your background goes. Cause I know even from the times we fished together, you don't have any problems picking up a walleye out of the back of the boat when you got guys, you know, musky <laughs> casting in the front of the boat. So I've seen that too. So let's talk a little bit about your guide service and your background. All right. You know, it's funny thing. I never started out just targeting muskies. I was always just a river fisherman, fishing the river, fishing the feeder streams that fish that feed into the river. You know, um, I used to, I grew up fishing the four mile Creek catching brook trout. And that's what I did growing up. And then I advanced to fishing. The, I followed the four mile down to where it dumped into the Wisconsin river and I started fishing that, and I was catching walleye, smallmouth bass, and, and panfish, and um, every once in a while, something would come up and eat my fish, or take it, and I always thought, you know, I want to I wanna know what that is that's, that's taking my walleyes or taking my bass, so I started targeting bigger fish, and to be totally honest with you, it took me a long time to finally catch a muskie. For a long time, people don't realize that I thought, you know, like a lot of people out there, I'm never going to catch one of these fish. You know, it's like this elusive mysterious fish that you know lives in there but how am i going to catch it well i just got to the point where i just dedicated my time to targeting whatever's eating the walleyes and bass that i'm trying to bring in while i'm trying to bring them in and it took a while but eventually i started figuring out different ways to catch them and how to catch them and started catching some muskies and i realized okay this is this is the number one fish in this system and i want to fish for them and I did, and I continued fishing for them, and I got pretty good at it, at least I thought, to the point where I started fishing tournaments and started doing pretty good on the tournament circuit. I applied some of the techniques that I learned by fishing the river system in some tournaments that I was fishing in northern Wisconsin, mostly on lakes, and they worked. You know, when I first started fishing tournaments, a lot of the guys on a tournament circuit were throwing bullfucks. They were throwing um, bucktails you know, bluker tails, whatever, just throwing little bitty bucktails. And that's what 80% of the guys threw. And it seemed like the guys that were winning were doing stuff that was different, throwing wood or throwing rubber and, and doing different things. And those were the guys that were always in the top 10. And it's not because they were, you know, fishing different water or doing anything, you know, majorly different. They were just throwing different baits. And I continued with that success to the point where, I started having outdoor writers calling me and TV show guys calling and wanting to do, you know, TV shows. And with that, I started having people ask me if I did any guiding. And at that point I didn't, but I thought, you know, I talked to my wife about it and said, you know, maybe we should think about it. And I did. So I started taking a few people out and we were successful and word of mouth led to a few more people and a few more people. And it got to the point where it was becoming a full-time business. And between the tournaments and the guiding and working at a paper mill, which is what I was doing at the time, I had to make a decision of whether I was going to continue the fishing because it was getting that busy or quit doing it and work at the paper mill. Well, I took a leap of faith and quit the job at the paper mill and jumped into the fishing full-time in 2005. That's when I left my full-time job and went out on my own to start you know, the full-time fishing and look, well, I've got luck. Here I am, you know, 16 years later, well, a full-fledged business where we take people fishing and hunting and I'm still tournament fishing and it seems to be going pretty good. I have a bunch of guys that work with me. We can take out little groups of people. We can take out groups of up to 20. And now it's going into, you know, open water fishing, ice fishing. We do turkey hunts in the spring. We do bear hunts in the fall. And then I still do some tournaments. So that's pretty much it. Well, I know that, it, you know, the common theme on this podcast, we talk to people in the industry is always about how hard they have to work to stay in the industry. I know based off of, you know, just my conversations with you, how hard you work, because like you said, I mean, we could talk a little bit about the bear hunts. 
I know yesterday you were telling me how you finally had a day off of ice fishing because it was too cold, but yet you had to go run around and pick up, you know, gummy bears and things like that to get ready to start, you know, baiting bear because you run a pretty successful bear hunting deal in the fall as well. Yeah, we, uh, we do pretty well. Last year we had 21 hunters in zone C primarily, and, you know, 15 of those hunters were successful in, in, in getting a black bear harvest. So that's a, that's a pretty good season when you consider the statewide average for zone C last year was 14%, the year before it was nine. And, uh, year before we were at 80% success and last year we were at like 75 or 70 or something like that. So that's a pretty good success rate, I think. Yeah, I'd say it's more than pretty good. And in a lot of that, you know, pays it's because of the amount of effort you guys put into, you know, trying to like you said bait those bears and get everything going so that your your clients have a better success rate. But I'm I know based on fishing with you that you had that same mentality when guys are taking a trip with you as well. I mean, you guys definitely work your tails off to make sure everybody's catching fish. Yeah, that's a big part of it. You know, I've said that to our other guys, too. You know, when we're out on the water, especially with large groups, um, if somebody's on fish, let everybody know about it and let them know what's working. It's nothing worse than coming in at the end of the day when you got three, four boats out on the water and three of the boats coming in, they all had a good trip and you got one boat that did not do well. I, I put that on myself. You know, we, gotta, we need to share information. We need to work together as a team. It's not about, okay, this guy did so good and this guy did okay. That guy had a bad day. Who cares what the guy did? You're not about the guy, it's about the clients. And we spend a lot of time, you know, on the water, especially pre-fishing and targeting those fish before the trips to make sure that when our clients are in the water with us, they're successful. I couldn't agree more. I mean, honestly, I've always thought the same thing you just said, Phil, and it's so important. I mean, the clients are what it's all about. It doesn't matter that I caught three fish and they didn't get any. I mean, it, it's about them and that, that experience is for them. So I'm with you, and I, I agree with that. And and it sounds uh, it sounds like we have interesting um, similar paths. I had the same scenarios that you did. I had to make a decision. I was getting so booked, and I'm like, I'm looking at Carrie going either I need to quit my job or I need to start canceling trips. So, congrats right. on that, man. And it sounds like you just had a really super successful deal. So let's talk about networking a little bit. You talked about it working with these other guys and sharing information. I think networking is a huge part in the sport that maybe gets neglected and it's never really discussed. Yeah. You know what? You're not going to do this on your own, plain and simple. There's just too much going on, you know, and if you're guiding all the time, you don't have time to do the scouting. And that's a really big part of what we do, especially when you work a system like I do with the Wisconsin river system and the flowages. I don't think people realize how much those fish move and relocate just like out on Lake Michigan or Green Bay where those fish may move miles in a day, patterns change here inland, especially on a river system, day in and day out. They can change within a couple of hours. And if you don't have a couple of guys that you're working with, you're going to start to struggle. But when you get four or five guys that are working together or a couple of guides, you know, and I work with a few guys in the area and we share our information, well, I'll tell you what, it makes a heck of a lot of difference. And again, like you had said, it's not about whether the guide is successful the clients need to be successful because if they're not successful, you know what? They're going to go somewhere else and they're never going to come back. And that's not good. You know, your reputation is everything. That's all you have in this business. And you need to make sure that your trips are successful. Um, could you give the listeners maybe kind of a good idea of what your daily routine looks like if they jump in a boat with you? Sure. So let's say you book a trip with me and we're going to go out next Wednesday. And somewhere between now and next Wednesday, I'll have to put together a plan of, you know, what we're going to do. If we're going to fish walleyes, if we're going to fish muskies, if we're going to fish bass or crappies or whatever. So a milk run of different lakes and rivers in the area that I'll fish. And depending upon what we're going to target, I'll check out different bodies of water to make sure that, you know, and I've done this a long time. I have a pretty good idea on where these fish are going to be and at what time they're going to be there throughout the year. So I'll have a milk run of places. I'll just go and check them out. You know, and that's kind of a funny story, I'll go and check and make sure those fish are there. I'll use my graph. I'll actually do a little fishing. If I catch a few fish, I'll move on. And I'll leave it alone until you and I get together and we'll meet at the boat landing and we'll jump in the boat and we'll head to those spots that I had caught those fish or spotted those fish and start targeting them. I had one guy, though, that, that used, and he still does work with me, but he had a, had a heck of a learning curve. We had a trip coming up and it was an afternoon trip. 
and he spent the whole morning out free fishing. And he went from hole to hole to hole in the river targeting those fish. And he did really well, actually. Came in at the end of the day and said, boy, I had a really great day walleye fishing. Actually, I kept my limit. And then we met the clients. We went out, and we came in that evening. And you could just see the long face he had on him. And I said, I said, what happened? He says, oh, it's the worst trip I ever had. I said, what do you mean? He says, we couldn't catch a fish. I said, what do you mean? I said, you were on them all morning. He says, well, I went right back to those spots, and I, I couldn't catch a fish. I said, well, how long did you sit in those holes this morning? And that's what he did. He went there, and he caught fish after fish after fish, and then went to the next spot, caught fish after fish after fish. And I said, well, you, you cleaned them out, and they're not going to reload in a few minutes. It takes sometimes days to reload. And when you go out and do your pre-fishing, if you go to a spot, you pick up a fish or two, you put your rod away, and you move on. You don't just sit there and catch fish until you can't catch anymore because then when you take your clients out, obviously they're either all stung or gone. So that's one of the things you got to do. Like ice fishing. You know, I was talking to Jeff yesterday about ice fishing. I've been on 48 lakes already this winter, ice fishing, pre-fishing, scouting, checking lakes out. So I have places to take people. If I took people to the same lake day in and day out, day in and day out, pretty soon there aren't any fish left. So I have to have a pile of places to go. So one day I can go to this lake, one day I can go to that lake, another day I can go to another lake or backwater up the Wisconsin River or something. So when I'm taking people out, they're fishing fresh water with fish that have been undisturbed. So I hope that kind of answers your question. Yeah, absolutely, Phil. I just, uh, you know, it's kind of cool. It spawns some different stories and things like that. And I think uh, our listeners enjoy hearing some of those stories as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Most people tell me I should write a book with some of the stories from some of the things that happened throughout the day. Maybe someday I will. <laughs> <laughs> I know based off of just spending a, you know, a couple of days in the boat with you, it was a couple seasons ago we, we did some filming for YouTube with Phil. And, and uh, yeah, there was just nonstop stories all day long. So I don't think it would take you real long to fill up a book. No, I don't think so either. A guy could write a book, any guide, I think, with, uh, with some time could write. Um, books that honestly, I don't think people would believe. <laughs> I I definitely can understand that. Um, so Phil, with all the guiding that you're doing, you're also a tournament angler. I don't know that you do as much of it as you used to do, but you've also been super successful doing it. Why don't we talk a little bit about, you know, your tournament fishing days and the prep that went into it. I know some of our listeners are, they may, may be avid, you know, musky tournament anglers, or they're just thinking about getting started into it. And why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, just how you go about it? Because you're, you know, with everything else that you're doing, it's not like you can spend a week prior to these tournaments to go and, and fish these bodies of water. And in talking to you, even if you did spend a week, it may be detrimental to your success. So why don't you talk a little bit about musky tournaments? Boy, and you know what, Jeff, there's so much to talk about. And, and you're right, early on, I used to fish a lot of tournaments. There was years when I was fishing 15 to 20 tournaments a year. And I spent a ton, and I mean a ton of time on the water pre-fishing. But now let's back up. I wasn't doing as much guiding back then either. So I had a lot more free time. So even after work, and I worked at a paper mill, so I worked a swing shift. So I had a lot of free time after work, in between work, days off during the week, where I could go out and do the scouting and the pre-fishing and, and get a lot of that done. And over the years, you know, there's two, two or three things that have happened. A, I've learned a lot of those bodies of water really well. And some of them are still the same bodies of water that I fish now. So there's not as much pre-fishing, and we'll get to that in a minute, that I have to do now to, uh, to learn the water. But you still need to figure out certain patterns. Also, I, um, I fish fewer tournaments now. And I also rely very heavily on a very good partner that does do a lot of the pre-fishing. You know, um, Scott Lewandowski is a gentleman I fish with most of the time, and he's an excellent, excellent musky fisherman. He spends a ton of time on the water, and, and he lives up in the area where we do a lot of the fishing, and he knows those lakes and rivers, you know, as well, if not better than I do. And I rely very heavily on him when I can't make it there to do a lot of the pre-fishing because of guide trips or work or whatever. So a lot of that focus goes on him. But I still do get up and I still do do some pre-fishing and it still does take up a lot of our time. But a lot of the pre-fishing now consists of, instead of, you know, going out and fishing, it's a lot more just going out and studying the water and looking for specific things. 
you know, like let's take the Eagle River chain, for example. You may have one year where you're going out and you're working one of the lakes on the system and you've got a beautiful weed bed and you've caught a couple monkeys out of there. And let's say the following year you go there and you go to fish that weed bed and it's gone. Well, if you're spending a lot of your tournament time fishing where you thought there was a weed bed and it's gone, you're wasting valuable fishing time. So when we do our pre-fishing or scouting for a tournament, I guess the big thing is we're not looking for fish per se. We're eliminating what we call dead water, water that we're not going to fish. So if you can eliminate, let's say, 80% of a body of water and target down to 20% and then start narrowing that 20% down to areas where you see fish, you're giving yourself a milk run of areas to fish while you're not wasting time in areas that are going to be unfishable, if that makes sense to you. Absolutely. So then the next step is when you get to the tournament day, obviously have your program put together or pattern put together. Now there's a couple of underlying factors weather conditions, the time of the year, um, what pattern are they going to be on? Because, you know, a storm front could come through and, and change things all out of whack. You might have had a great bucktail bite pre-fishing, and you get a cold front that comes through or a storm and blows it right up, and the following day, they're only going to eat rubber. Or you get a nice, long, steady pattern of hot weather in the summer, and it's going to be a big blade bucktail bite. At least you hope it is. But um, the big common denominator is other anglers. You know, you may have your spots that you want to fish and you start heading out. Oh, there's a boat there. There's a boat there. There's a boat there. You got to start looking at different things like secondary and, you know, other spots that maybe aren't or are overlooked by other anglers as spots to target fish. And then come back to those other spots that people have targeted and fish them differently. You talked there about fishing them differently. What is it that you would say mm-hmm. that you do differently that maybe your your average angler doesn't do? I know in a tournament situation, Everybody's kind of got their own nuances and and how they go about things, but I mean, are you using different baits? Are you fishing structure differently than the average guy? Like, let's talk about about let's talk a little bit about doing things differently. Well, let's start with um, you know a couple of years ago when Scott and I won the WMT championship. You know, it was fall. Everybody thinks you got to go big baits and and throw wood and or rubber, you know, and fish deep in the fall. Well, our pattern consisted of throwing double cowgirls in five feet of water in weeks and burning them. That's what they wanted. You know, Scott found those fish and, uh, and, and we were able to capitalize. I did get one to hit a slick, but everything else came on double call girls, fish the shallow weeds. And nobody would think, you know, common sense would tell you, why are you throwing a bucktail in the fall and burning it? But that's what they wanted. He figured it out and that's what they wanted. And that's what they ate. Now, other times, this couple of years, you know, I, we did well and won the pro fall pro am twice. I'm throwing bulldogs in one to three feet of water and ripping them through the weeds. And I mean ripping them through the weeds. I don't know if I could do that anymore getting older, but that was the pattern. You know, early September, you're throwing bulldogs on the shore and literally just ripping them through one to three feet of weeds. And those fish are just blowing up out of there. They're so used to seeing bucktails and jerk baits that they're not targeting them anymore. But you throw something different, like, you know, a pounder or a mag dog through there, and they're like, well, they're still hungry. They're going to eat, and they come flying out of there and, and hit them. <laughs> that one tournament that we won, you know, we had, I'd been up there with John Sparable. This was when I fished with him in the Falls Pro-Am. We were up free fishing for two days and scouting, and we never saw a fish. And I don't mind telling people that. We struggled. Never saw a fish for two days. Fished all day Saturday. Yeah, I never saw a fish until about 4 o'clock. And I remember telling John, I said, do you remember when we were up in the river? And I said, there was some weeds. And I said, there was a bunch of wood on the ground. I said, we should go hit that. I said, we got an hour left. I said, it's close to the boat landing. I said, what do we got? It was at least at the end of the day, we're close to where we parked the truck. And I'm sure if anybody fishes, they, they understand what I'm saying. When, oh, yeah, it's getting to the end of the day. Let's just get the heck out of here. So we went up there. And um, we started fishing that stretch, and in 40 minutes, we hooked into six fish. And there was a, what we call a, um, a wolf pack of muskies sitting in that weed bed, and they were all piled in there. And we ended up putting two 40-plus-inch fish in the boat. And I think we were in, I don't know, second or third, first place. I don't remember what it was after the first day, but the next morning, I remember we went right back to that spot, and we ended up catching two more, and we won the tournament. But it was because of some structure that we had found in our side imaging one of the days of our pre-fishing 
and uh, everything else was failing. And I thought, you know what? Let's go up and hit that one spot we had seen that's close to the boat landing, and, and it worked out. So sometimes luck comes into play as well, but it was something that we had found free fishing. That That's so awesome, man. I, I love those kind of stories because it came together and you, you capitalized, obviously. One of the things that I, yeah. I want to ask you, though, Phil, is do you believe in burning fish before the tournament? If you're pre-fishing, will you burn that fish or will you try to pull the bait away? I'm interested to hear that. You know what? That could go both ways. I've been there on and both instances, you know, and I, you know, I've talked with Scott about this time and time again, and you know what? You might as well just catch the damn fish. <laughs> it's one, one fish. Um, at least you're putting together a pattern. Um, if that fish is that hot, and and I'm sure you know as well as I do, especially with like the Eagle River chain, there is an inch of that water that's not getting pounded. If you see a fish the day before the tournament, you might as well catch them because there's a guy behind you that's going to catch them if you don't. And, and then here's another scenario, too. And and I, I've heard this from a lot of people, and you may agree or disagree with me. And I hear a lot of people, oh, the muskie was hot. He was coming in on the bait. I had to rip it away from him so he wouldn't get it. I'll tell you what. If that muskie wants that bait, if he really wants it, he's having it. And there's nothing you're going to do to get it away from him. Period. He'll have eaten it before you even saw it. Um, the ones that you got to, you know, figure eight over and over and over and over again, if you're pre-fishing and you've got to figure eight a fish like that, that's probably one you want to leave alone because you might be able to trigger him the next day or during a prime feeding window. So, you know what I mean by what I'm saying? That could go both ways. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It does, Phil. I totally agree with your concept there. I just, it's always interesting to me when you're talking to tournament guys, what they you know, each guy has their own mentality to what that looks like. And I, I think you hit it right on the head. I guess and a big part of it is, too, I'm trying not to fish the day before the tournament. Like I said, we go, off, go around and I use my side imaging and, you know, we'll drive the boat and, and study the water and look for weeds and, you know, just check out to make sure things are where they, where they need to be. You know, after you've done this a long time, like I've done it for a long time, you got a pretty good idea on what you're looking for. Now you just got to put it together on the day of the tournament. And I've said multiple times to Scott, we're better off just coming out here the day of the tournament and fishing, you know, and, and just going than you know, coming out and, you know, sometimes put together a pattern because things change overnight and you may end up wasting a half a day doing what you thought you knew and, uh, and not catching any fish. But on the other hand, a lot of times your pre-fishing pays off and, uh, and you put those patterns together and, and you come out winning. It's a horse apiece. Yeah, I got to tell you, sometimes I wonder how we can even catch a muskie. I'm I'm still sitting here thinking about your double cowgirl story, burning double cowgirls in the fall. And I just want to know, how did you guys stumble on that pattern exactly? Because I got to tell you, from my experience, burning double cowgirls is probably not real high on my list. Is it something you guys have had experience with before and that it's worked out? Or how did, how did this pattern all of a sudden develop? I'm just curious, not even from a tournament standpoint, just from a musky information standpoint well i guess your answer to that would be in the summer when i think those fish are super lethargic okay and, and I'll, I'll give a really good scenario because i do this at a bunch of my sem- seminars your fish are super lethargic okay and they're laying there and if a slow lazy bait goes by you know they may get their attention and they'll watch it go by okay now picture yourself laying in bed at night Okay, and you hear a mosquito off in the distance, and you kind of hear it. Okay, so all of a sudden that thing starts buzzing around your head. Back and forth, you start swatting at it. Well, I think a muskie's the same way. That's going to maybe sound like a crazy scenario. So that lazy bait goes by, and they kind of look up, and they see it. But all of a sudden, let's say something comes ripping by them at 100 miles an hour. I think it triggers something in their head, and they say, I got to strike that. You know what I mean? It's a reaction strike. It's not a feeding strike. I think a lot of my summer fish aren't feeding fish. They're reaction strikes. I'm ripping those bulldogs like I told you I do in the fall, like at the false proam. We're ripping jerk baits. We're burning bucktails super fast. They're not eating. They're striking out of aggression and reaction. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. So the same kind of thing. You guys were, you know, slowing down typical like you would in the fall. Realized you weren't getting any, any strikes off of that. So you're like, well, let's see if we can fire up a re- reaction strike. And so you're like, well, Bingo. there you go. Makes sense. Bingo. 
Or you get them coming in lazy, down low on a slow-moving bait, and you're like, i got to do something to trigger this fish to speed it up. And I've done that bringing in bucktails. You see them coming in from a distance, and the fish is behind it. And especially if you're using, like, a trank, you can jump on it and just start hauling it in. It's going to trigger them. And that speed, I just wrote an article about that not too long ago. It's called Speed Kills. And it does. You get something coming in, all of a sudden you jump start it. It's almost like a reaction. Let's say, and I tell people this all the time. You know, they ask me, should I slow my beat down to the muskie follow on it? I said, if you're walking through the woods and a lion comes up behind you, are you going to stop? No, <laughs> you're going to take off running. <laughs> well, it's kind of the same thing. Well, that's going to trigger that lion to come after you and get you. You know what I mean? I had a friend of mine walking out of the woods, and he had two wolves follow him. I said, what did you do? He goes, I just kept a slow, steady pace, and I walked out of the woods. I didn't want to do anything to trigger him to think I was going to try to evade him. And I just walked out, and I got my keys out of my pocket, and I walked right up to the truck, and I jumped in. I'm like, that's not a bad idea. You know, if you start to take off and run right away, it triggers, hey, he's trying to get away. That's when they attack. Well, they're pretty much the same way. They're, in a, they're a predator. So I hope that helps. I think that's perfect. I mean, it makes total sense. So I'm, I'm, yeah, it's nice. I think the one thing we do as musky anglers, though, is, and I'm guilty of it too, is sometimes I think we get guilt, we get stuck in a rut as far as like, this is what worked before. This is what should be working. <clears throat> And so we, because, because sometimes your opportunities are limited with muskies, we stay in that same, you know, we kind of stay on that same path, hoping that the window opens up and we can catch a muskie. Whereas in an instance, like you just said there, where you made that change, triggered a couple muskies. Next thing you know, you went from a bad day to a really good day and found a pattern that nobody else was on and helped, you know, be more successful in a tournament, which you know, in turn, it could have been a tournament or just a regular day on the water. It doesn't matter, you know, what the scenario would be. But in that instance, you guys definitely made a change away from, you know, what you were doing previously and you had success doing it. And I think that we don't make that change as musky anglers fast enough. At least some of us don't. I agree. You know, and that's the funny thing about musky fishing. You could go out and fish all day. And, you know, unlike walleye fishing or pan fishing where you're going to catch a bunch of fish, you get one muskie a day, one, and it turns a terrible day into a great day. Just that fast. One, all you need is one, one fish, and you've had a great day. Just that simple. Well, and I think that's why sometimes we're afraid to make those changes is because we know that this presentation has worked before, and it's just, a, you know, hopefully we're anticipating that it's just a matter of time before it works again today. And cause that's literally all it takes is one strike. Whereas sometimes, like you said, they're not going to go on that pattern every single day. And so by making those changes can help put more fish in the net. And so I, right. I just, I just think, like you said, I mean, literally when I go out musky fishing, all I'm hoping for is one fish. That's it. I don't care if, even if I got two guys in the boat, one fish in the net is that's a good day. Yep. Everybody's successful. It doesn't matter who catches it as long as we put one in the boat. So here's something else I'll do, and this is more towards the guiding and even the tournament fishing. You know, if I'm guiding and I've got two guys in the boat, one guy's throwing what I think is going to be the bait for the day. You know, this is the bait that's been working. This is the bait I'm going to have you throw, and this is what you're going to throw. Next guy may throw something totally opposite or something similar, and honestly, most of the time I don't even fish. I just pay attention to what's going on. But once in a while I'll throw, and if I'm throwing baits, I'll throw something totally different. You know what I mean? Just, uh, you know, if, if we're not having luck, I'll throw something right off the wall, you know, and, and try something totally different. And I honestly learned that from some of my clients in the boat. Um, they'll be out in the fall fishing. I'll be throwing a suet. One day I'll be throwing a jerk bait of some sort or uh, a twitch bait or a crank bait. And uh, I've got one guy in particular. He's like, I'm going to throw a funky chicken. I'm like, nobody throws spinner baits in November. Ah, Phil, you should try it. And bang, he gets a fish, or he throws on a topwater bait and starts bringing it in, in in the end of October. And, you know, not too many people throw topwater in October. This guy does, can't. All of a sudden, here comes a muskie, third cast later. He's like, see, I told you. Like, what? You know, you just never know. You never know. There's so many different variables and factors. If the water warms up throughout the day and those fish become more aggressive and turn on, or a bucktail or a topwater bait might work in the fall where you're normally used to throwing, you know, slower glide type baits or jerk baits. It's just, you never, ever know. You just got to take all that information that you've learned over all those years and kind of compile it into, okay, you look at everything. Temperature, current, water depth, time of the day, 
you know, the body of water, how many people are fishing it, and put all those factors together and say, okay, this is what we're going to do today. Here's where we're going to start, and this is what we're going to start with. I, I'm curious, you know, on, on a daily basis, you know, do you start out doing what you did the day before that, that actually worked? I mean, that's typical. You're going to always try to go back to those baits that were working. When do you start experimenting, and uh, what's that experiment look like? Well, you know, on a daily basis, let's let's take this into consideration. Where I live here in central Wisconsin, the Wisconsin River runs through here. I have Lake Wausau. I've got feeder streams. I've got the stretch of river between Wausau and Mosinee, and then I have Lake Dubay and that stretch of the river, and then I have the Stevens Point Village and that stretch river. They're all part of the same river, but each one fishes differently. They're all like individual bodies of water. They all fish differently. Lake Wausau and the Stevens Point Village have weeds, so you've got that to fish around. Half Moon Lake and that stretch of the river and Dubay, no weeds at all. So they fish totally differently. Depending upon current, and I know Jeff and I talked about this a little bit yesterday, depending upon current and the time of the year and what people want to target specifically will help me determine which one of those bodies of water I'm going to fish. I probably shouldn't even see this, but if I'm looking for numbers of fish just because I got a guy in the boat that wants to put a fish in the boat, I'm going to either fish Lake Wausau or I'm going to fish the stretch of river from the Domtar Dam down to Mosinee. There's a lot of fish in there, and you can generally put a fish or two in the boat on a daily basis. It's not that hard. Now, if I want a big fish, I'm going to fish Dubay. It's got a bigger forage base, it's bigger water, and typically the fish down there run bigger. But they're harder to catch. There's a lot more water, and there's a lot less areas for them to be, if that makes sense. I mean, there's so much water, they're only going to be in certain spots, and it takes a lot more time to figure out where they're going to be. But once you've done it long enough, you kind of put together a milk run out there as well. So on a daily basis, depending upon, again, water flow, current, um, what the people want to catch, that'll help determine which body of water I'm going to fish. And yeah, if I was catching fish the day before on a specific body of water, and I've got the same type of clients that want to fish the same thing, I'm going to go back to that same body of water and maybe fish a little differently. But let's just use last year for an example. You know, Jeff and I talked about this a little bit earlier. Last year for me was a tough year for muskies. And usually in the fall, I do very well muskie fishing. Two years ago, I think we had 130 fish in the boat 30 days. It was ridiculous. We had high water. It was cold. Those fish were stacked up in non-current areas. And if you knew where those spots were, those fish were suicidal. It was ridiculous. I was getting three to five fish a day. I think one day we had 11. It was just nuts. Now, fast forward to last year, we didn't get the rain. We didn't get the cold temperatures. Those fish were scattered. And in the fall, you obviously fish slower. So, I mean, and I don't mean slower with your baits, but I mean slower presentation with covering water. And it was a lot harder to find those fish because they were more scattered. But I was able to fish Lake Wassa, which fishes more like a lake and fish weeds and deep troughs and channels. And you were able to put together an easier pattern or a pattern at least to target those fish versus fishing the river itself. Does that make sense to you? Yep. I try to Go tell ahead, people Jeff. all the time that I try to tell people all the time, you know, they always ask, you know, what do you look for on the river when you're targeting fish? I, I tell people all the time, your number one factor when fishing a river system is current. It will determine where those fish are every day. And that goes for high water or low water, fast water, um, and the time of the year when you take into the temperature of the water. And there's so many factors, and I've done multiple seminars on just river fishing. And you can end up talking for hours just on how those fish relate to different currents and throughout the times of the year and high water and low water. And, and here's a couple of just real quick examples. If you have high water and it's cold, those fish are not going to want to fight that current. So they're going to move into areas where there's less current. They're going to move into the eddies. They're going to move behind islands. So they're going to move into the backwater areas off the main river channel. They're just going to get out of that heavy current. They don't want to be in there. So it's going to force them into tighter areas. If you have low water, this is the hardest time to fish for them. People think, oh, low water, they're going to be in all the deep holes. Not, not necessarily. They're going to be scattered all over the place, and they're going to be hard to catch. 
high water, those fish are feeding and they're pinned in tight areas. There's a lot of fish in the air, so they're competing for food. When you have low water and they're scattered all over, they're more worried about their own safety. It's like you sitting in your house and all of a sudden the roof's coming down. You know, it's getting lower and lower. They're thinking about where am I going to go so I got some water to live in versus, hey, I'm going to eat something. So when you have falling water in a river, it makes for tougher fishing conditions for sure. And then, again, you take into the consideration the current. They're going to be in the current areas because they got, well, at least this is moving. We're going to, you know, we're not going to run out of water here as long as it's moving. But they get into some of those backwater areas, and all of a sudden it's dwindling. It's going to flush them out of there. And that doesn't, that makes, you know, no difference what time of the year it is. So I hope that helps. If you had a preference, Phil, would you rather fish a lake or a river? Um, I fish a river. I would definitely fish a river. One thing I want to ask you about rivers is I've heard that, you know, moon phases aren't maybe as effective on river systems as they are on lake system, lake systems. Would, in your experience, would you agree with that or not? Um, no, I would say that it does affect those fish. Moon phases affect the fish no matter where you are fishing. I'll tell you what doesn't affect the fish on a river as much as people think is weather condition changes. Where if you're fishing some lake like Minocqua, or Clear Lake, or Tomahawk, or the Manitwish chain, where you're on a you know Clear Lake there, and it's you know super clear water, and you get a cold front that comes through. Well, you might as well just stay home. You know, uh, well you might catch a fish, but you know the odds of you getting a fish there are really tough. Versus fishing on the Wisconsin River with the dark stained water and moving water, a cold front's not going to affect those fish as much as it would on a lake. It just doesn't. Moon phases. Um, I have guys that specifically watch their calendar and book me around a moon phase. And believe me, I, I talked to you about this a little bit yesterday. I think I don't think we talked about moon phases, but I talked to you about that June window where those muskies turn on. And that's usually right around that moon phase where, yeah, there's even in the summer, those fish turn on around a moon phase. And it seems like even late July or August, and I don't do a lot of muskie fishing in the summer. I just don't like to do it when that water gets warm. But if I've been out, fishing for muskies for a couple days and it's been warm and you're not seeing any fish and all of a sudden the moon phase comes in and bang all of a sudden you get a three fish day well what caused that nothing changed but the moon phase so i believe it does have an effect on those fish so phil i was thinking about going down the road of like say i'm a beginning river muskie angler like what kind of stuff am i looking for type of a thing i mean obviously you said current was important but am i looking for anything that's shoreline related or anything like that yeah, we can go that route. So let's just take a typical day, like you know, Brad had asked me earlier, what do I do on a typical day on the river? So I'll just take one particular day, and I'll put the boat in the water, and I'll run up to, as far as I can to a dam, okay? And usually below a dam on a river system, there's a couple of islands. Well, early in the morning, those fish are going to be up shallow, so fishing around those islands is going to be key. Target that, those rocks around those islands and fish that shallow water. And any variety of baits, depending upon the time of the year, from topwater to bucktails or bucktails to um, crank baits or, um, or jerk baits. And then as the day starts progressing, I start working my way down river. Now, I don't fish the entire river. I've got sections of river or areas that I fish. If I got a long, straight, flat river with not much structure or a, not a lot of current breaks, I'll blow right through there and I'll work my way down to, let's say there's an area with big boulders that are in the middle of the river or a current break that sends the river in a different direction. And there's a nice petty with um, maybe some structure in there. I'll shoot down and I'll fish that area for a while. And then a lot of times when I'm running the boat, what I'm doing is I got the nose of the boat pointed up river, but in the back of the boat drift down first and I'll have the two or whatever parts of gentlemen that are in the boat with me fishing out of the back of the boat, casting all that water as we drift into it while I kind of just try to maintain the front of the boat pointing up river, working our way down. And then um, if there's any bridges in the river, especially those concrete pilings, that's always a great place. You know, man-made structure in a river is always a good place to target. Um, we got a power plant on the river, warm water discharges. In the spring and fall, those, keys, those places can be key, key target areas. And not just in the mouth of those areas, but for maybe a mile down river, um, let's say in the fall, your water temperature's 45 degrees, water coming out of a warm water discharge might be 70. It'll draw the bait fish up in there and in turn will draw larger fish, which the muskies will follow and 
they'll stack up on those shorelines from the mouth of the warm water discharge down maybe a mile. And those are great places to target. Other areas are where you have a really fast stretch of water because it's shallow, and then also, boom, it drops off into deep water. And you may have a stretch maybe a quarter of a mile long. You know, and when I say deep water on the river, I'm talking like 10 feet or 12 feet, nothing like 20, 30 feet because we don't really have that much water for the most part. There are some spots that have deep water, but you'll run those spots in the fall. The little fish will move into that deeper water in the fall to get out of the current. Other places to look for are feeder streams that come in, like um, fresh incoming water, especially if it's a trout stream. In the summer, when you got colder water coming into the river system, if you got a trout stream dumping in there, the river's up in the 70s or 80s, that trout stream might be in the 60s or maybe even the 50s. Those big muscles will seek that out and move into that cooler water just to get out of the warm water. Again, another place to look for is we talked about backwater areas, you know, getting out of the current when you have that high water area or sharp bends in the river with a lot of wood, a lot of structure. Anywhere you see down trees and timber in the wood, those are all great places to target, especially where they're congregated in a big area. Or if you have a river system that opens up into a flat, like above a dam, it's got a big flat, not real deep, three to five feet, but all the wood that's pushed down throughout the year, through the spring and any high water, it's got to go somewhere. And as it's tumbling along in eight to ten feet of water, and all of a sudden it comes up on those five foot flats, it bodges. And those are just unbelievable places to target muskies because they'll hang around that structure. So, Phil, I'm curious um, if I remember right. I'm thinking you guys were in a normal boat when you filmed with Jeff, but is there stretches of river where you're using a jet boat as well, or you pretty much get by with just a regular outboard? Okay, so if you remember earlier when I talked to you about the stretches of river that I fished, Lake Wausau, Mosinee, Stevens Point, those stretches of river, I can run an 18-foot crestliner boat with a 200-horsepower motor, no problem, from one end to the other. You start getting north of that, then you need to get a hold of, you know, Bradworth or Kurt Schultz, guys that run the jet boats, because you're not getting through there with anything else unless you plan on getting out of your boat and dragging it through three inches of water, period. You're just not going to do it. There's, you know, there's some nice holes, but you've got to get through areas that are super shallow. Where I fish, it's deep enough to run a regular size boat. I was curious about that because I, I thought I remembered right. I, I know I watched that episode that Jeff put out on YouTube, and but I wasn't sure if you did both. You know, where you were getting into some of that shallower stuff. Well, you know what? We are in some shallow water. There's areas I'll take that, and, and people might think I'm crazy, but you'll take that 18 foot boat through two feet of water, but you're doing about 50 miles an hour because you got yourself up on plane and you're shooting over shallow water. And I've actually had guys that have fished with me and I'll shoot through some of those shallow spots, especially in the backwaters to get to other areas that I want to fish that are off the beaten path, but you've got to go through super shallow areas to get there. And there's only one way to do it. If you go slow, your boat's going to sit low in the water and you're going to drag bottom or your prop's going to hit. So you go through there at 40, 50 miles an hour and you plane up and you shoot right over the top of it. And I've actually had clients call me and say, where was that spot we went fishing? Because I can't remember where we were. And I tried to get back where I thought we were. He said, but the water was too shallow for me to even get in. I just laughed. And I said, well, you were in the right spot. But you're either going to have to know it really well, or you're going to end up cracking up with your boat. You know? And I've got a couple of lower units and probably six or seven props laying in the river somewhere for 40 years of fishing that, you know, you don't learn the river without making a few mistakes. I can tell you that right now. I can just think back to a time. So I, I went fishing with Phil even before the YouTube thing. And one of my buddies, uh, Troy, he knew about the river well enough to know like depths and stuff like that. Or or he was just paying attention to, he was looking in the water when we were flying through there. And so we, we go flying through a spot, Phil going, you know, 50 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour, whatever on this river. And he looks over at me like, do you realize how shallow we are because of, like you said, I mean, you're just flying around there because you know it like the back of your hand. My, my river experience is a lot slower paced. I'm going half the speed that you are at best. <laughs> well, again, it goes back to something that we talked about earlier and me having a milk run the spot that over the years, you know, these are the areas I like to fish. Instead of fishing a lot of dead water, which a lot of guys will do, they'll start at a dam and I'll just float down the river for eight hours and fish it. And they may or may not get a fish. Well, you know what? I've got, you know, eight hours in the day to take somebody out and put put a fish in the boat. I'm going to hit what I call high percentage spots, spots that I think 
you know, and you saw that when we went fishing, we're going to hit this spot and we're going to shoot down to this spot. And we're going to hit this. We're going to fish it for a little bit. We're going to shoot over here and hit this spot. And you know what? I don't have time to sit here and, in my mind, know that we're, we're just covering that water, you know, and, and you don't know that, but I do. And I don't like that fact that I'm going to be fishing dead water and I want to make sure you catch a fish. So we're going to shoot right over water that I don't think is going to be as good as what we're going to or what we just came from. So, yeah, and to get to some of those areas, yeah, you know, we're doing 50 miles an hour over 1.8, 2.3 feet of water. The one thing I'm always amazed about is when you when you talk about dead water and good water is like to your average angler, there's so much of it that looks good that it can chew up a bunch of your time just because you think, you know, you see some trees down or or whatever visually, you see some current breaks and, and whatever, and it all looks good, but much like lakes, just because it looks good doesn't mean it always holds muskies. I know I've learned that. You're right. You know what that comes from? There's a book written about it, Time on the Water. That's all it comes from. That's the only way you're going to learn those spots, just spending multiple, multiple days and countless hours on the water learning and figuring out why these spots are good and why these spots are bad. And, you know, there isn't, probably an inch of that water that I haven't fished multiple times. And even some spots that you think, boy, this looks like it'd be a great spot. There's got to be a fish here. And you hit it and you hit it and you hit it. And you just, after a while, you just think, you know what? For some reason, they don't like it here. And then other days, you'll hit a spot and you'll think, no self-respecting muskie would even think about living here. And and it's a honey hole. And you're like, why are these fish here? You know, what, what causes these fish to be here? And some of those questions you just can't answer. They're just there. But... You're not going to know that unless you spend a lot of time on the water, a lot of time on the water. Right. The one thing we let's talk about time on the water comes from uh, boat control. Be one of the last topics that we'll hit up. I know that, you know, like you talked about, some guys just like to go up river and they'll just float themselves back down, probably make a few adjustments with their trolling motor as they go. But to be the most effective, you need, you really, really need to be good at boat control and I, I know boat controls is especially important when you're fishing lakes, but I think it's even probably more important when you're fishing rivers. How is it that you you know you, you can navigate so well? Like what are the tricks of the trade, I guess, when it comes to navigating in a river? Um <laughs> I don't know. That's just a good question. Uh boy, you got me on that one. I don't know. Just spending time learning your equipment. Uh you know what helps a lot? Having a very good trolling motor. Spot lock and autopilot, um, priceless, priceless units to have on a boat. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about how I drift down the river with the nose of the boat pointed into the current, and I, I let the back of the boat drift down the river. It's even more important when you're dragging suckers on a river. Unlike a lake where you, you can move around and the suckers, you know, get dragged behind the boat no matter which way you go. Well, when you're floating down a river, you've got current. And if you stop the boat and you're going the wrong way, those suckers are coming into the boat. Or if you're going too fast or too slow, they're constantly getting balled up under the boat or caught up in a motor. So not only are you watching where the, the people are fishing and you're trying to avoid hitting rocks, you always got to pay attention to where those suckers are out behind the boat and making sure they're drifting fast enough or drifting with the boat or fast with the boat and keeping pace with you. Just, you know, visually looking downriver as I'm working the boat downriver, you can see where there's boulders and trees and obstructions in the water. So you manually adjust the boat left or right as you're drifting downriver. And when you're when you're running with the boat facing into the current, you can control your speed. It's almost like trolling into the river, you know, into the current. You can control your speed and you can control the direction of the boat versus pointing the boat downriver. And at that point, you're at the mercy of the speed of the river. And you have to go with the flow of the river. And if there's an obstruction coming or some other structure in the water, odds are you're not going to be able to avoid it. But when a boat's pointed upriver, you can control it 10 times better than when it's pointed downriver. And you can maneuver the boat in and out of the current and around those sections of structure and, and let your baits and clients work around those areas a lot, lot easier. Now, when it comes to fishing around a bridge or a dam, and you've got other obstructions in the water, you know, dams are really dangerous. There's a lot of current, a lot of undertow, and the person has to be really careful. And unless you really know what you're doing with your boat and how to, you know, operate your equipment, I wouldn't suggest you get too close to dams because you can get in a lot of trouble in a hurry, especially if something breaks. But, again, just knowing your equipment, know how to use it, is, uh, is a lifesaver. 
Yeah, it's a good thing you brought up that about dams because I'm even, I know, and I've fished around them enough, and I'm I'm a little leery of them myself even yet just because, I mean, I fish by myself a lot too. So if, if something happens and I end up in the, in the water for some reason, it's not likely going to end well. No, not by a dam. There's too much undertow. I tell people that all the time. You go in here, we'll be picking you up downriver somewhere because you're not going to fight that current. Absolutely. You're definitely not going to be. Right. As you're using your side imaging, as you're basically just kind of slip drifting with the current is kind of what I'm understanding, Phil. How are you utilizing your side imaging at that point then? So I'll give you two examples. One, I'm, I'm watching the side imaging. I've got it hooked up to both locators on the boat. They both read off my back transistor so I can see the side imaging while I'm up in the front of the boat, you know, running the river. And a lot of times, you know, you'll see some structure that you might not physically see above the water. And I may hold the boat there and say, hey, there's a nice tree in the water over here or a big rock. You know, make sure you get a couple casts up in this area here or fish that a little bit more. There's a little underwater crevice here or a break here. Make sure you fish that. Now, I haven't personally seen it to this extent, but I'm pretty sure you know who Jim Sauber is with the Mosini um, Sports Repair Shop. He had told me last year that he was fishing on the river. And I'll give you two examples. One day he said I went out and he said I went up and down the river using my side imaging, looking for muskies. He said, I spotted a few muskies. He said, I took 36 casts and caught three of them because of the side imaging. He said, I just drove around and drove around until I saw a fish, and I casted for them. Now, this last year, I had him help me with a guide trip, and he was out on the water, and he said he was going along with the boat, moving up into a spot below an island to where he wanted a fish, and he said all of a sudden he saw the fish underneath or behind the boat and whatever it was off to the side. He said, I put the spot lock down. I dropped the sucker out. I let it go back. He goes, it wasn't five seconds. Boom. That muskie grabbed it 45 inches. He said his client was super happy. <laughs> well, I just, I think the unique part of being able to slip drift, if you want, if you, if that's what you would call it. But um, by doing that, yeah. you know, all, all of a sudden your side imaging is on the front of the boat, if you will, versus, on the back so that's what came into my mind you know and it it definitely is probably going to improve some of your chances kind of almost like using uh the mega 360 so kind of neat that you maybe see the fish before you get to that spot yeah yeah and and again if i'm dragging suckers in the fall and all of a sudden i see something i can you know kick in the speed move the bull back up a little bit and then slide over or back and and work that area a little bit better versus you know if we were going the other direction, now I'm already that much further ahead and moving that much faster with the current and having to turn the boat around and get back up. Well, sometimes you're not going to do that. The current might be too strong, especially on some days where that current's strong enough that I'm, I'm just holding in the current, you know, to keep it from drifting too fast. I could definitely so, see yeah, that. Yeah. No, having that side imaging can, can be invaluable, honestly. And, you know, I know this is totally off the subject, but with, with the new modern-day electronics, they may have to look at some of the fish regulations coming up here, especially with even pan fishing and stuff like that. Because the ability to catch fish now is, is getting so much easier with those new electronics. I can't disagree with that at all. I, I think it's about time that they actually do some of that because, like you said, I mean, it's if you're proficient at using your electronics, it's definitely, you know, a for sure, I want, I want to say it's a, it's a gimme because it's not, but it's definitely takes a little bit of the, you know, takes a little bit of the guesswork out of it. That's for sure. It does. It does. I've got friends that have that pan optics and, you know, I don't have it, but they'll be out ice fishing. They can drill a hole, drop it down and say, oh, the school of crappies is over there 50 yards, go over, drop a hole and start, you know, pounding on them where, you know, back in the day, you're out there just drilling holes until you either run out of energy or you find the fish. And, and then you hope to stay on them long enough to catch a few. But now you don't have to do that. You just drill a hole, look, oh, they're over there, and then go and catch them for the most part. Like you said, especially with the panfish stuff, and and we'll we'll see how things work out or shake out as far as whether or not, you know, Canada gets opened up. And I, I mean, in your area, did you see more pressure last year because of that or not? I saw a lot more pressure, a lot. Pressure like I've never seen before. Yeah, and I, I tell people usually in the spring, even for the walleye run around here, you see, you know, 20, 25 boats on the river during the day. During the week, this spring, 75 boats on the river every day. Boat landings just packed. It was, um, it was crazy. It was. We saw a lot of fishing pressure, lots of it. 
And I think the fish populations really, really got impacted from it. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. And then with all that fishing pressure, if you, if these guys are keeping fish, then you have the potential there to, you know, have over harvest and, and yeah. th- these fisheries just can't sustain that forever. Fortunately on the musky side, no, you, know, you know, the pressure doesn't, most of these guys are releasing fish, but even if you go to like whatever 10% delayed mortality or whatever it is on musky, more muskies being caught is in all likelihood going to impact it negatively also. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's one of the, one of the common, I would say double-edged swords that as a fishing guy, we have to deal with. Everybody thinks that, you know, you're out on the water taking all their fish. Well, I would have to tell you that, you know, 90% of my trips, people don't even keep fish. They're just out for the experience or to learn how to catch fish. Very seldom do I have people keep fish. Very seldom. And when they do, it may be enough for a dinner. I can think of one trip last year where a guy kept a limit of walleyes. Other, and that's not for the fact that people didn't catch them. Most people don't keep fish, you know. They just don't. They'd rather go out to a Friday night fish fry at the local tavern and have a few beers with their buddies and not have to worry about going home and cleaning fish. It's just the way it is. So as a, as a fishing guide, everybody thinks they're out there keeping all the fish, and for the most part, they are. And even when we ice fish, you know, now years ago, we used to keep a lot of fish. And, you know, obviously a, a process of learning. Well, we're to the point now where when we take people out, I'll limit them to 10 fish, 10 panfish. That's what you're going to get today. You know, there's five of you. We take 50 fish out of this lake. That's a lot of fish. But again, like we talked about earlier, I've been in 48 different lakes this year. So I've got a, uh, a multitude of lakes that I can go to. So we're not getting the same lake over and over and over. It's just fishing smart. You know, I, I tell people, those are my employees. You can't keep taking them out of the water and keeping them. Otherwise, there won't be any left. <laughs> It's true. I, I love I love the uh, the analogies I get out of you, equating things to mosquitoes and different uh, different things. There, it's great. Well, Phil, unless you have uh, unless there's something else that Brad feels we need to add to this episode, I just want to thank you for coming out. If somebody's looking to get in touch with you to or your guide service to book a trip, how do they go about doing that? Well, they can uh, go to my Facebook page, obviously at Phil Schweik, or they can go on the internet and go to Hook Setters. Um, www.hooksetters.biz or you can call me 715-693-5843 that's my home number excellent well once again we thank you for coming out to this episode i i always enjoy you know sharing time talking fishing with you or whether it be at a show or on the phone or in person and i hope that uh i hope we get a chance to get out fishing again this year i know it's been uh, a couple years since we've done that and to date, you still have the biggest fish that we've recorded on our YouTube channel at the 50-inch giant that, that Steve got. So hopefully maybe there's a shot at we, that we could break that this year. So once again, Phil, thanks again for coming out. We appreciate you talking muskies with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs>